You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's Obvious, Misfit, David, Torso and Pinches, Matt, Hangman Strain, Shelby, Axios, Richard, Hartman, The Sextant, Brian, Roger the Jolly, Artemis Killmeister, Captain Crunch, Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again, The Navigator, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat, Gunsway Sally, Cannon Monkey, Rum Runner, Madame Anita Sparrow, Hefe, Bull, Vertigon, Rumgut, and Bootstraps Bailey. And of course our quartermasters, Heather, Robbie, Howard, Kevin, and Nathan. I'd like to welcome our newest patrons, Chester, Mira, Nathan, Rachel, Philip, David, Arnie, Paul, Steve, Eric, Eugene, Kieran, and Jonathan, as well as our newest Commodores, Doc Lindsay and AJ. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. Last time, Captain William Kidd was arrested by Lord Bellamont. Now, Kidd did not expect to be arrested. I mean, I'm sure he knew it was possible, but he didn't think it would be coming that day. He didn't even know really what he'd been arrested for. And again, there's a good chance he thought it was probably the piracy, but no one would tell him anything. Now, if I were in Kid's shoes in this situation, I would be less concerned about the piracy and more concerned about the circumstances under which I'd been arrested. Captain Kid had lost his temper. He'd marched to the governor's house, armed with a sword, and barged inside, screaming the governor's name. Looking back on it, circumstances could be misconstrued as Captain Kidd intending violence on the person of Lord Bellamont. And Bellamont was upset by Captain Kidd's behavior. In a letter he wrote to the Court of the Admiralty documenting Captain Kidd's arrest, Bellamont said, quote, Kidd was by the door of my lodging, and he rushed in, came rushing to me, the constable, after him. He seemed very much disturbed. End quote. Which... To be fair, if any one of us were to rush into the governor's house carrying a sword, we would be arrested. It was a logical conclusion to make. 
Regardless, though, nobody would tell Kid anything. Not the reason for arrest. Kid didn't even know, here at this point, that there had been a warrant issued for his arrest before the outburst. He kept asking about bail. You know, he had the money to pay it, but nobody would tell him what his bail was set at. The constables who had arrested him dragged William Kidd down Prison Lane and tossed him into the Boston Jail. The Boston Jail in 1699 was a terrible, terrible place. An account of the jail in 1689, ten years before Captain Kidd was locked inside, reads, quote, The old stone jail on Prison Lane had outer walls of stone three feet thick. Its unglazed windows barred with iron, the cells partitioned off with plank, the doors covered with iron spikes, the passageways like the dark valley of the shadow of death. End quote. This is episode 276, The Old Stone Jail on Prison Lane. Captain Kidd was flummoxed by his situation and pretty upset about it. This, what was happening to Captain Kidd right here, it's illegal in almost all of the modern world for very good reason. We have protections against this sort of treatment. Here in the U.S., for example, we have the Miranda rights just for this purpose. For those of you outside the U.S., that's the thing in cop shows where they say you have the right to remain silent. Anything you say can and will be used against you in a court of law. It's a list of rights and warnings given to people who are being arrested to inform them of what's going to come in the near future. Captain Kidd didn't get any of that. He was just tossed into solitary confinement in a filthy, dank, and depressing jail there in Boston. And then they just kind of ignored him. No visit from his lawyer, at least not on that first day. No word of whether his wife was informed. Nothing. He was just stuck. Lord Bellamont, though, was moving fast. Captain Kidd was arrested around lunchtime on the 6th of July. Before lunch was over, a team had been dispatched to the St. Antonio to arrest Captain Kidd's crew. Now, they found only five people there to arrest. The gunner, a man named Hugh Parrott, a Gabrielle Loff, and three cabin boys. William Jenkins... Robert Lamley, and Kidd's personal servant, Richard Barleycorn. This isn't exactly a criminal empire they were rounding up here, but they were arrested. There's been some theorizing about exactly why the St. Antonio was so lightly manned. The most fun of these theories usually entail a man in Lord Bellamont's service who is also a double agent, a man who tips off the crew of the St. Antonio, giving them time to skitter away just before the law comes down on them. Reality is probably less fun. Most of the men, and there weren't a lot on board the St. Antonio to start with, but most of the crew were probably just ashore at the time. And not even, you know, drinking and carousing. This was Boston, they frowned on that kind of thing. But it was lunchtime. They were probably grabbing something to eat. When they heard what had happened to Captain Kidd and the rest of the crew they skipped town. The boarding party searched the ship after the arrests were made, but they didn't find very much there. Kidd had a chest with some silver odds and ends in it. A bit of cutlery, a candlestick, and a couple of goblets, some loose coins, nothing, nothing too valuable. 
but another team was dispatched to Captain Kidd's lodgings at Duncan Campbell's house. Now, this team had two jobs. Their first was to search for treasure. We'll get to that in a moment. As for the second job, there's some confusion, mostly on my part, about what actually happened at Duncan Campbell's house. And remember, that's where the Kidd family had been staying in Boston, where Kidd was writing up his account of the voyage when he rushed off to go confront the governor. Sarah Bradley Kidd and their two daughters were still there, waiting for their husband to come back. They did not know what had happened. I'm going to choose to share the version given by Daphne Giannakopoulos in The Pirate's Wife, since it's a lot more fun. Well, not fun exactly. It's more dramatic. Giannakopoulos writes, quote, Bellamont ordered Sarah arrested and taken to prison. The constables came to Campbell's house and barged into her bedroom. Like Kidd, who fought the constables to be dragged away with his heels leaving tracks in the dusty road while he shouted the curse words Bellamont forbade, Sarah probably tried to wrestle free from the men who grabbed her. Shoving and elbowing, maybe in sensitive places, Sarah struggled until several men overpowered her. Seeing her precious children, she may have leaned forward to touch each one's cheek with her face. The men may have arched her back to prevent the contact. Their brutal insensitivity may have brought Sarah into a high-pitched scream of anger, red-faced rage, as she begged them to let her go. No doubt Sarah pleaded her innocence and demanded to know why she was being arrested and treated like a common criminal. End quote. That's an exciting passage, but there are a couple of issues to address here. First of all, I don't have any other sources that talk about Sarah Kidd getting arrested. Now, that's not surprising. Most writers that write about Captain Kidd barely mention her at all. In Robert C. Ritchie's Captain Kidd and the War Against the Pirates, Sarah is mentioned exactly twice. First, when Captain Kidd marries her, and second, after Captain Kidd is... Well, spoilers. But that's it. Richard Zacks is much better when it comes to acknowledging Sarah Kidd's existence, but he doesn't talk about her getting arrested. Nor does Jan Rogozinski, or Douglas Burgess, or Frank Sherry, or David Cordingley, or anybody who's written about Captain Kidd that I have. As well, the primary sources I can't find reference to Sarah Kidd being arrested. Now, that's not to say it didn't happen. Giannakopoulos probably has access to sources I don't have, but she doesn't cite that source, so I can't verify it. But Lord Bellamont would have been a fool not to have Sarah Kidd at least detained. You know how there's that saying, they know where the bodies are buried? Well, Sarah literally knew where the treasure was buried. And since the pirate's wife is the only source I have that tells me what's going on with Sarah Kidd at this moment, that's what I'm going with. I do, though, take issue with her description of Captain Kidd's arrest, how he was dragged down the street, digging in his heels, screaming vengeance down on Lord Bellamont. It's colorful, and Giannakopoulos is far from alone in telling the story that way, but I don't think that's really how it happened. That version of events does not match up with what the arresting constable said after the fact, nor does it match up with what Lord Bellamont himself said at first. He agreed with the constable that William Kidd went peacefully. But a few months later, once the political situation had drastically changed for Lord Bellamont, he changed his tune. His later descriptions are very much like what Giannakopoulos says, but I think those are politically motivated and not the truth. 
However, I also wonder about the reality of Sarah Kidd's arrest. What was it really like? You know, the way Giannakopoulos described it sounded pretty awful. Using words like brutal and sensitivity, having her ripped away from her children violently, painfully. There's also a thematic element in there in which a group of men barge into a lady's bedchamber and assault her. And to be fair here, Giannakopoulos is not saying that's what definitely happened. She uses the phrase may have three times in that short passage I read, along with a maybe, an it's unlikely, and a no doubt. I have no problem with any of that. I'm fine with a bit of dramatic license here and there. I do it myself, as long as you're honest about it, and Giannakopoulos is. But I think it's probably more likely that the arrest was actually peaceful. Sarah Kidd would have been upset, certainly, angry, and maybe tossed some choice biting words around, but I doubt it was a violent affair. The reason that I doubt it was a violent affair is because of the man who was actually sent to arrest Sarah Bradley Kidd. His name was Nathan Byfield, and Nathan Byfield was a Boston luminary. He had been the Speaker of the Massachusetts General Court, which is a colonial version of the Speaker of the House. He was the first judge of the Vice Court of the Admiralty in Boston. That's the highest admiralty court in America that answered only to the admiralty court back in London. He was also the chief judge in what amounted to Boston's municipal court. Not only that, he was English-born. He had powerful friends in the home country. This was a guy that Cotton Mather, the most influential man in Boston, maybe in the whole of the American colonies, Cotton Mather was a bit wary of Nathan Byfield. That's not the kind of guy you send to make an arrest. That's way below Nathan Byfield's pay grade. That's a job for a constable, maybe if it's somebody important, a magistrate. But this guy's the top judge in Massachusetts. However, Sarah Bradley Kidd was not a normal arrest. She owned way too much property in New York to be a normal arrest. In church, she sat right behind Lord Bellamont and his family, a church that she helped build. Her name was on her pew. That's not the kind of job you send some scruffy deputy on. I think it's more likely that Byfield and a group of constables and magistrates walked up to Duncan Campbell's door and knocked. Because it was still the middle of the day, be a bit odd for Sarah to be in her chambers, and you don't kick down the door of a man like Duncan Campbell, an agent of the governor. Instead, I imagine Campbell opened the door and let them in. Nathaniel Byfield, a genteel, polite, and diplomatic man, would have sat Sarah down and told her that her husband had been arrested and that she too was to be detained. And again, sure, Sarah would not have been happy with this, but I doubt she tried to fight off the Speaker of the House. No, she probably went peacefully, if unhappily. But once she was out of the way, Byfield and his men were able to search Duncan Campbell's home for any treasure that the kids may have had hidden away. And at first they didn't find much. There was Sarah's personal stash of 250 pounds sterling, that also came with that scale for weighing gold and a pair of pistols. It's that package that Captain Kidd handed off to a sloop right before he entered Boston. What Giannakopoulos called the Pirate Wife's Survival Kit. Beyond that, though, a few purses with a little bit of silver in it, nothing to write home about. But then, 
One of the men noticed a pair of seabeds lying in the corner. A seabed was a blanket roll that sailors carried while they were on a voyage. It also held most of their stuff, you know, powder and shot and food, that kind of thing. But this agent probably wondered, why were there a pair of seabeds here in this house, on land? In the bedchamber of a well-to-do family, not some scruffy sailor. So the search party unrolled those blankets and they found 22 pounds of solid gold. Gold that was confiscated and promptly delivered to Lord Bellamont. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change. But it's also a story about people, populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The Boston Jail was not an easy place to be incarcerated. We talked about it in some depth when we talked about the Salem Witch Trials. Most of the descriptions we have of the jail as it stood in 1699 come down to us from the Witch Trial era. So we don't need to spend a lot of time rehashing it. It would be cold, wet stone. It would be drafty. When they say the windows were unglazed, that means no glass. The food wasn't very good, often rotten, and their only bedding was a pile of straw also the only source they had for using the restroom. Captain Kidd spent Thursday night in that jail, as did his crew and his wife, although they were all separated. It must have been a long night for him, but on Friday his lawyer was allowed in to see him. Now, this lawyer was not James Emmett. Emmett was a lawyer in New York. This man, a Bostonian, was named Thomas Newton, and he'd been around ever since Kidd arrived in Boston six days earlier. He was a friend to the Kidd family. But Thomas Newton still couldn't tell Captain Kidd very much. He'd made the proper inquiries, but Lord Bellamont was still tight-lipped about exactly why Captain Kidd had been arrested. However, he could share the information that Sarah and his crewmen had been arrested, and that they had found his 22 pounds of gold. Newton did have a plan, though. Above all, the very first thing that Captain Kidd needed to do was to finish his account of the voyage of the adventure galley. Together, the two men got to work. 
We're going to read some of that for you here. I'd planned to read this account in full in a smaller supplemental episode, but as I was recording it, it occurred to me it was probably a little dull. We know most of this story already, and a lot of it is rehashing nothing all that interesting. Instead, I'm going to read you some choice bits that give you a flavor of the document and Captain Kidd's take on some of the more controversial aspects of his voyage. Narrative of the Voyage of Captain William Kidd, Commander of the Adventure Galley, from London to the East Indies, July 7, 1699. That the journal of the said Captain Kidd being violently taken from him in the port of St. Mary's in Madagascar, and his life many time being threatened to be taken away from him by ninety-seven of his men that deserted him there, he cannot give that exact account he otherwise could have done, but as far as his memory will serve, is as followeth. End quote. And then he gives a basic account of the early voyage, how the adventure galley left London, how Kidd had his crew pressed from him by the navy, how they headed for Plymouth, we're skipping New York, how they rounded the Cape of Good Hope, we're skipping Madagascar, then they careened at Johanna, we're ignoring the debacle with the treasure fleet in the Red Sea, and then Kidd sailed for India. He continues, quote, that on the 25th day of April, 1697, set sail for the coast of India, and came upon the coast of Malabar in the beginning of the month of September, went into Karwar on that coast about the middle of the same month and watered there, and the gentlemen of the English factory gave the narrator an account that the Portuguese were fitting out two men of war to take him, and advised him to set out to sea, and to take care himself from them, and immediately he set sail thereupon. Next morning, about break of day, saw the two men of war standing for the galley, and spoke with him, and asked him whence he was, who replied, From London, and they returned answer from Goa, and so parted, wishing each other a good voyage. Making still along the coast, the commodore of the said men of war kept dogging the said galley all night, waiting for an opportunity to board the same. In the morning, without speaking a word, fired six great guns at the galley, some whereof went through her and wounded four of his men, and thereupon he fired upon him again. The fight continued all day, and the narrator had eleven men wounded. The other Portuguese men of war came up with the galley, being calm, else would have likewise assaulted the same. End quote. That's the first period in this chunk of the passage I've read so far, and I've been skipping over a lot. Kid continues, quote, the said fight was sharp, and the Portuguese left the said galley with such satisfaction that the narrator believes no Portuguese will ever attack the king's colors again, in that part of the world especially. End quote. I love that. He's making the world safe for the king's ships. Kidd goes on to talk about his two encounters with those ships carrying French passports. Of the second and more important of these, this is the Quita merchant, Captain Kidd wrote, quote, about the first day of February following, upon the same coast, under French colors with a design to decoy, met with a Bengal merchantman belonging to Surat of the burthen of four or five hundred tons, ten guns, and he, he means kid here, commanded the master on board, and a Frenchman, inhabitant of Surat and belonging to the French factory there, and gunner of the said ship, came on board as master, and when he came on board the narrator caused the English colors to be hoisted, and the said master was surprised and said, You are all English, and asking which was the captain, whom, when he saw, said, Here is a good prize. End quote. That account, 
here is a good prize of a completely non-violent capture of this Quida merchant. That's Kid's story, so we need to take it with a grain of salt. Finally, though, Captain Kidd is forced to talk about St. Mary's. He continues the document, quote, With the two said prizes sailed for the port of St. Mary's in Madagascar, and sailing thither, the said galley was so leaky that they feared she would have sunk every hour, and it required eight men every two glasses to keep her free. With much ado, carried her into the said port of St. Mary's, where they arrived about the first day of April, 1698. When he arrived in the said port, there was a pirate ship, called the Mocha Frigate at an anchor, Robert Culliford, commander thereof, who, with his men, left the same at his coming in, and ran into the woods. The narrator proposed to his men to take the same, having sufficient power and authority to do so, but the mutinous crew told him, if he offered the same, they would rather fire two guns into him, than one into the other. Thereupon, Ninety-seven deserted and went into the Mocha Frigate. They sent into the woods for the said pirates and brought the said Culliford and his men on board again, and all the time she stayed in the said port, which was for the space of four or five days. The said deserters, sometimes in great numbers, came on board the said galley and adventure prize and carried away great guns, powder, shot, small arms, sails, anchors, cables, surgeon's chest, and what else they pleased, and threatened several times to murder the narrator, as he was informed and advised to take care of himself. Their wickedness was so great, after they had plundered and ransacked sufficiently, went four miles off to one Edward Welch's house, where his, the narrator's chest, was lodged, and broke it open, and took out ten ounces of gold, forty pounds of plate, 370 pieces of eight, the narrator's journal, and a great many papers that belonged to him and the people of New York that fitted them out. About the 15th of June, the Mocha Frigate went away, being manned with about 130 men and 40 guns, bound out to take all nations. I mentioned, a few episodes back, that I probably should have said something about the treasure that Captain Kidd left at Madagascar. And I probably should have, but it's a problematic story. Because that is the story, what Captain Kidd says right there. That at Edward Welch's house they took so much of his gold, so much of his treasure, and so many of his papers that were in a chest he had left there. It's entirely possible that that happened. Captain Kidd has, in fact, left much of his treasure with people he trusted all around the world. But it's also quite convenient for Captain Kidd. In effect, saying to the men who had outfitted his ship, who were expecting their payment, Look, I made the money for you, but if you want to get it, you're going to have to get it from the men who stole it from me. And of course, they're pirates, you know, they've probably already drank it all away. Ignoring the fact that Captain Kidd had, at this moment, just about that amount, a little bit more, in fact, but just about that amount of gold hidden away on Gardner's Island. Money that he neglects to mention at any point to Lord Bellamont in this account, or as far as we can tell, up to this point, anywhere else. Assuming that this document exonerates him and he gets out of jail and is instructed to go collect the adventure prize and bring all of those riches up to Boston, if that's enough for Lord Bellamont and his other investors, well, then Captain Kidd will have a very large stash of gold hidden away, just a few miles south of Rhode Island. After the Mocha Frigate leaves St. Mary's Island, Captain Kidd continues on for some time, but we don't need to continue reading. 
This document is a gold mine for students of history. You know, we rarely get first-hand accounts of voyages like this. And as far as we know, this account isn't too bad. It's not perfect, of course. As Richard Zacks says, quote, Hindsight shows us that it was accurate as far as it went. Kidd skipped the murky Red Sea incident and the Portuguese ship Mary. End quote. Captain Kidd also skipped over the murder of one of his men and a bunch of other stuff that made him look bad. But it wasn't entirely fabricated. Meanwhile, Lord Bellamont was working furiously, as furiously as a man suffering from gout could work. Lord Bellamont was ordering lots of other people to work furiously. Bellamont formed a small posse to guard the treasure that they had confiscated, and another larger posse to hunt down all the rest. From Thursday night until early, Friday morning, men were roaming the streets of Boston, going into all of the taverns, scouring the docks. They were rounding up anyone and everyone that might have any information about Captain Kidd's treasure. They were also looking for the rest of Captain Kidd's crew, but they'd already skedaddled. Still, there were a number of sailors picked up who had either met or worked with Captain Kidd in some capacity since he had arrived in Boston. On the morning of the 7th, one of Lord Bellamont's agents brought the governor an interesting piece of news. A, what was described as a rough-looking sailor, had been looking for a ship to carry him to Gardner's Island, down to the south. It's an odd destination, and this rough-looking sailor had been in something of a rush, Finally, he'd found someone, a sloop captain, that had offered him passage at a, an exorbitant rate. This was a sailor in patched, threadbare clothing, and he had paid a full 30 pounds sterling for a trip down to Gardner's Island. This was very, very odd, and everything about it spoke of something nefarious. So Lord Bellamont ordered his own men to outfit a sloop to investigate this gardener's island. And they were to do so quickly, as quickly as possible. They were, after all, in a race for Captain Kidd's treasure. I'd like to thank everybody for listening. I'd like to thank everybody who has helped to support the show. All of our patrons on Patreon. Everybody who has recommended this show. And everybody who has left us ratings or reviews. I couldn't do this without all of you. Thank you. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows like Big Picture Science, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. Our theme music was, as always, The Old Captain by the fantastic band Brillig. If you'd like to check them out, you can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.
fight this war The old captain has died Let him live on in legend tonight